Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This time we'll be looking at bringing it all back home. This was Bob's fifth album, released in March 1965, and it was recorded over three days. So as always, Rich, we're going to kick off um, with a little trip down memory lane for ourselves. How familiar with this record were you? I think, think I know the answer to this one. But how did you first get into it and um, what, do you, what, are your, what are your memories of it? I was a lot more familiar with this than certainly the uh, another side that we talked about last time. What I remember, though, is that I'd actually heard Maggie's Farm on Hard Rain before this. And I'd also heard Before the Flood. Um, and so there were some songs from this album that I was familiar with prior to having heard it from the first time. I listened to this, as with many other Bob Dylan albums, on cassette. And... Yeah, I mean, it it was one of those that because I came to Highway 61 before this, although everyone always holds it up as a classic, and I absolutely, uh, I won't dispute that, it's a great album, it's a wonderful album, it never quite hit me in the same way as Highway 61. I think it was just because I'd heard Highway 61 first. What about you, Mark? Well, yes, similar story. I was obviously very, very familiar with this. Uh, it would have been one of the first Bob albums I listened to back in the day. Like you, I'd heard Highway 61 before, certainly. But yeah, one of the very early ones that I discovered. And it's been one of the ones I've gone back to the most, certainly, uh, in the intervening years. I was thinking about this this morning, actually. With a lot of records of Dylan's, I'll go back to them and think I'm going to listen to the, the record, put on the tracks, Blonde on Blonde, Street Legal, anything like that. I'm going to put that on today. But with this one, this is the one where I probably go back and listen to individual songs a lot more. And I think the reason for that might be just there's so much variation on here, isn't there? I mean, we're going to talk, obviously, about the famous split between the uh, electric first side and the acoustic second side. But even on that second side, he's got such such variety in those four songs. The the, the kind of um, the, the almost throwback to the times we are changing in the stylings on It's All Right, Mar. I mean, I think that acoustic guitar really could be on Times We Are Changing, couldn't it? And then straight away, something completely different with Mr. Tambourine Man, with those little droplets of electric guitar coming in. And then you've got all the blues stuff as well. So yeah, um, one I've definitely revisited over uh, a lot over the years. But uh, I did want to just pick you up there, Rich, on the um, the cassette question, because yeah, I'm pretty sure I also listened to it on cassette first. And I'm, and I'm sure the track listing was pretty different on the UK cassette version. I think I think that you're right, and I no longer have the cassette, um, so I'm just going to rely on my rather patchy memory. But I <laughs> don't, yeah, I don't, I don't remember it it being quite so distinct. This idea about the acoustic side and the electric side, and I think this is one of the things, one of the reasons why I've always thought maybe it's a little bit patchy, because I think on the version that I initially listened to this on it didn't have that distinction and so it kind of went it was blues one minute and then it was acoustic and then it was electric and then it kind of went back to folk rock and and it kind of jumped around all over the place whereas you look at it now and in the same way as it was released on on vinyl and it it makes much more sense it's almost like two separate suites of songs I suppose but yes certainly in my memory I think it kicked off with Maggie's Farm you see I think well I mean for reasons that we'll talk about later that might have been one of the ways in which I was slightly prejudiced against against this as a record again <laughs> i'm gonna just kind of reiterate the fact that this is obviously an undisputed classic and i love it um as, as an album but that song slightly less but yeah i think i think you're right i think it was i think that the order was different i i do remember yeah that and i remember the, the, the tracks being mixed and then reading 
probably in somewhere like uh, Mojo that it was split into two very distinct sides and me thinking, what on earth are you talking about? No, it isn't. But the, the other thing I, I remember about this record was that for many years, it was my go-to record when I'd be trying to um, evangelize about Dylan to friends. And I'd be saying, you've got to listen to this. And this is the one that I'd shove in their sweaty hands and um, they wouldn't call me for another three or four weeks. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I think it's it's one of the ones that that, that can really get you, and it, it can be very frustrating with with so many of these albums that you clearly know are stone cold classics. When people aren't kind of raving about how great they are, it can be a little bit frustrating. I mean, I guess this is probably, arguably, the the album that invented folk rock, though. I mean, what what, what do you reckon to that? Yeah, we had a little chat about this uh, in one of the earlier episodes, didn't we? And I think we said, potentially foolhardily, that a lot of the elements were there even on his first album in terms of the, the drive and the... the um, the performances but yeah i mean there's no doubt is there that you've you've still got that link from another side uh, which we, we talked about last time how, how the birds took that and, and ran with it and, and made a career out of it pretty much and i wonder to what extent is he doing the same things with his songs here i mean that, that's what people always say isn't it they say that the birds showed it could be done and then he took it forward on this album and then onto highway 61 and really um really uh, took it to new places but i, I don't know uh, how far do you go along with that rich because i know you've got some thoughts on um on the electric side in particular yeah i don't know how revolutionary this probably was i think it's very it's probably one of these things where it's quite convenient when you look back at it in hindsight and kind of set it within the context of history you think yep yeah, this was the moment this was the the one that kicked off the folk rock revolution and there we go because of course he was already an established folk singer and then we know that he went on to be this effectively an electric rock star but you listen to this now as an album and i'm sure if you if you played it to someone younger who was more versed in the even more kind of myriad different styles of music that we have at our disposal now. I think that they would be hard pushed to, to, to see this or hear this as a kind of revolutionary album, really, because yes, it's got electrical instruments on, on, on folk songs, effectively. And yes, it's got some electric blues on there. But in the time that I've spent listening to this over the last couple of weeks, I, I haven't really heard it and thought, wow, this is raw. This is really kind of pushing the boundaries. What do you reckon about that? Well, I reckon we should come back to that at the end of the discussion and, and, and see if we still agree. Because I do think that if we get into the, into the meat of it and, and start with, with the electric side one, I think the one area where I'd really disagree with you is, is with Subterranean Homesick Blues. Because I still think every time I put that on, it is like something coming in from another solar system. And I can't quite put my finger on what it is about it that does that. I mean, obviously, I think having spent the previous couple of weeks listening to another side of Bob Dylan, just the fact that it it comes in as as this electric sound is 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 jarring to start with, and obviously then you've got this rat a tat tat vocal style, which again I think is is really different from anything he'd done before, and different from what was in the charts at the time. Although there are influences, aren't there, which um, which play into that? Yeah, I think if you if you're going to cite any of these as being being something quite original and, and kind of strikingly new, I, I I agree. It's it's going to be subterranean homesick blues, and the thing is. You go back 10 years before this and listen to Howlin' Wolf's records or Muddy Waters' records, and if you're listening to the actual kind of instrumentation, I think they're a lot more raw. I think they're a lot more attention-grabbing, and I think they're a lot more, they have a lot more impact, I suppose, on the listener. But 
I do agree. There is something about this song, and you could almost, tr- I think it's, it's the marrying of this quite raw blues sound, which is not a new thing, with this incredible kind of lyrical in- wordplay and the kind of intensity of that. And I think that's what's important because it's, it's the, the, the kind of mashing together of these different styles. I suppose that's, that's, that's what's so new about this. Yeah, I think I go along with that. And that's where it's lacking on the other electric cuts on this side. I don't think you do get that same same effect. So a, a song like uh, Outlaw Blues, for example, I don't really see that same kind of lyrical newness. I mean, it certainly, it, it certainly could have been a song on another side of Bob Dylan, I think, and it's just been arranged in a different way. So I think, as you said at the start, for us now, it doesn't feel like anything anything out of the ordinary. And I, but I don't feel as though then it would have felt like anything out of the ordinary necessarily either. Well, I, obviously, I could be very wrong about that. But the other sorts of songs that are on that first side, you've got the more kind of electroacoustic ballad numbers. And again, I think although they are fantastic, I remember um, Love Minus Zero being probably my favourite song on this side back when I was much more young and innocent. And now I think uh, She Belongs to Me obviously uh, chimes a, a lot more. But those songs, I think you could you could see those almost being on something like A Hard Day's Night in terms of the arrangements, not the lyrics, I've got to say. I wouldn't see those on A Hard Day's Night. But that kind of electroacoustical style is, is quite familiar. A song like I'll Be Back on A Hard Day's Night, I think, would is not is by no means a million miles away from, from those arrangements. And it, I did wonder, we, we know, don't we, that, that the Beatles and Dylan had met in the summer before this album came out and they were they were aware of each other before that and, and in a way they've been moving towards each other so i wonder whether that's because of the influence of dylan on the beatles as well as the influence of the beatles on dylan uh, it's hard to say but as again i think the point is that those cuts wouldn't have sounded particularly new except for the lyrical innovations that were going on and so it's almost as though we, we think of this as the big electric album you know the big coming out party for for the 60s electric rock and roll but actually it's the lyrics that are more revolutionary and i think actually that's why the second side has even more power and i think it retains that now but i think it could even have been seen as more revolutionary back then i think that you're right about that because if certainly going back to some of the the the, the slightly more chuggy 12 bar blues i mean they're a little bit like muddy waters by numbers aren't they and if you took the if you took the lyrical cleverness away from them then they're just kind of like a bar band on the bayou, aren't they, really? I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything bad about that. I used to enjoy them very much when I was younger. And in fact, these probably were among my favourite songs on the on the album. I think in, as I've grown up a little bit, I've kind of changed uh, my, my taste in that regard. But it is, it's absolutely the the, the lyrics. And, and yeah, it's, it's, again, hindsight is a wonderful thing because you kind of see the, the, the Beatles and, and, and Dylan moving in these kind of, orbits which are getting ever closer to each other i suppose but yeah you're right about the 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 songs that you mentioned there i mean they they could they could feature on a hard day's night but when bob dylan does them they're they're folk rock and they're a bit revolutionary kind of thing when the beatles do them they're just kind of stripped down balladry from a from a beat combo really and so again context is so important in terms of the way i I think anyway in terms of the way that these are are kind of received at the the time by audiences and it does does make you wonder i mean the idea that people were shouting judas and things like that about the live show and we'll get to that later would they have been thinking the same 
as in god how dare he possibly ever put a, an electric guitar on something that's as stripped down and basic and and almost twee as some of these what do you think <laughs> yeah well that's one of the, the mysteries isn't it um but just just before getting into that i, I suppose what you were mentioning there about these these currents coming together that's that's something that i think i love so much about this album and it, it's 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 so celebrated but it's still almost overshadowed by what's going to come next but i think it's that it's that just capturing of a moment in time where where anything was possible really we know now what came afterwards but you've got the the folk stuff still very much in there you know you've got him playing the acoustic guitar pretty much throughout you've got this 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 blues bar band coalescing around the sorts of songs they never would have played before. You got these little bits of Beatlesy sorts of uh, arrangements. As I said before, I love the guitar on Mr. Tambourine Man. I don't, I don't even think I, I, I like it that much, but it's just that it's the way that it exists and it, it, it contextualizes it in a different way has, has always attracted me. And, and even more than that, the bass, I think it is on uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. I just think it's such a great, a great addition compared to what we've been hearing before. Um, and you got all this stuff mixed, you know, for the first time on, on a Dylan record and in many ways for the first time in, in anybody's records. And that's what's so uh, attractive about this album, I think. But what was the question? I've forgotten again. Yeah, no, we were we were talking in terms of the, the kind of orbits and the energy that was going on at that moment in time in the 60s. And it really was, I think. If you think about it, it's just this wonderful melting pot of stuff that's happening. So the Beatles are taken from Dylan. Dylan's taken from the Beatles. And... I mean, in very famously, of course, in 1968, with the uh, when the Rolling Stones did Rock and Roll Circus, there's that quote saying, "For a brief moment, it looked like rock and roll might inherit the earth." And just the the very idea of of all of this kind of magic and that that energy and the wonder and the the kind of excitement and exuberance that's existing, I think it's kind of all here on this album and just this marrying of art and lyricism and, and, and all of these different influences. And I, I'd say it's perhaps no better evident than on the, the video for uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is just an absolute masterstroke. I mean, it's so simple. It's so incredibly effective. It still looks bloody brilliant now. I mean, I showed it to the kids this week and they absolutely adored it. They loved it. They thought, what an interesting idea. Um, that it can still be that good all of these years later. And it kind of, I mean, arguably, that that's the first proper kind of music video, really, isn't it? One that, that I mean, he, he peaked there, really. I mean, Bob Dylan's videos <laughs> in the 80s did not live up to Subterranean Homesick Blues, I, I think it's fair to say. But, yeah, I think, I think going back to what was the question, I mean, it's just this, this sense of, of what kind of magical spell is being cast over this. And I, I really think it's there. I mean, it's, it's just, there's an energy there, isn't there? I mean, there's certain types, uh, certain, sorry, certain times in history, certain moments where things coalesce and there's like minds and there's a need for change. And um, I'm not going to use the Britpop revolution as, uh, as being any way uh, kind of <laughs> uh, equating to that. But I mean, it was, it was very much here. And, and if you think as well, I mean, the, the speed, the speed of which this has come around. I mean, we mentioned this, we mentioned how much progress he'd made in such a short time. But I mean, I, what are we like, three years maybe? The, the folk rock revolution. He's gone from being a Woody Guthrie clone to, to inventing folk rock, arguably, in like three years and, and changed entirely. I mean, it's incredible. 
it's three years, yeah. I think it was March 62, wasn't it, when his first record came out, although he'd recorded it quite a bit beforehand. But uh, yeah, absolutely incredible. But the, it's only seven seven months since um, Another Side came out. I mean, it's been staggering. This is one of the things that always gets me when I, when I look back at the 60s, the modern experience of a band. There's so many reasons why bands can't have the same impact that they have the same impact now that they did then, even if their work is objectively as strong. And obviously part of it is because you can't you can't repeat the first time, can you, in so many different ways. But one of the things that always gets me is, is why people don't move at the same velocity. What's what's happening? I think part of it is, you know, you've got these kind of corporate structures now, haven't you, where if you get a if you get a great record out, you're on the road for two years supporting it or you would be pandemic permitting but it is it's astonishing isn't it i mean the, the sort of the, the the gap between two or three u2 albums uh, and, and i love u2 but you know the gap between two or three of their records at their peak is pretty much the entire history of the 60s isn't it which is staggering to imagine it, it is i mean yeah you're right the corporate structures are, are very very different now the way that things are promoted i mean it was a new medium wasn't it really and a record had a shelf life of probably no more than about six weeks it would be plugged it would be released it would be in the charts and then it would be yesterday's news and so there was that kind of demand but i suppose the other thing was that people bought records and and people listened to them on the radio there wasn't much tv coverage there's there's so many different outlets now i mean for better or for worse and you're right that there's there's just not that kind of pressing need for not not to release content in a way where albums actually matter i mean there's a lot of people that put out huge numbers of songs now but they, they're not necessarily having a, a kind of narrative arc or, 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 a, or a collection of songs or a suite of songs in the same way and and i guess that's why that's why it is that we're talking all of these years later about an album like this i uh, this is not to dismiss or, or look down upon any of the stuff that's being released at the present moment in time but it's very difficult considering how how little value i suppose financially music has at the moment whether or not these these things that are released now are going to endure in the same way i mean i don't know i don't, I don't have a crystal ball i'm not a not Bob Dylan in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, we, we established last week that he uh, he predicted the pandemic, didn't we? And the failure of the uh, test and trace system. So exactly. yes, we're not going to we're not going to quite rise to that challenge. Well, shall we just pick out a few more tracks on side one then? I mean, we've talked a lot about Subterranean Homesick Blues. I suppose the other really big song is Maggie's Farm, isn't it? Well, I guess the reputation of Maggie's Farm rests not so much on this 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 version of it, but on what was to happen a couple of months later. So I know you wanted to pick that up, Richard. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is we're talking Newport here, aren't we? This is the... Uh, we are. We are. Um, <laughs> just wanted to check that rather than, <laughs> than, than launching into the time that, I don't know, Bob Dylan went on a bike ride and picked up the newspaper. Yeah, so, I mean, at Newport, yeah, he plays, he plays this at Newport. And, and this, this was the, the kind of moment when he really cut ties with the folk crowd. I don't know whether it was a year before or a couple of years before, Bob Dylan's been standing on stage at Newport when they have the kind of traditional end of the Newport Festival. And there he is on stage with everyone else in this kind of huge kind of folk jamboree style thing, singing, I don't know, We Shall Overcome or something, like one of those kind of folk standards. And a year or two later, there he is, plugged in with an electric band, and people are just reacting like there's some kind of demonic presence on stage. And I mean, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it, to know, unless you were there, of course, how much of that is a reaction to the fact that this 
formerly acoustic primarily player has dared to plug in an electric guitar and how much of it is due to the fact that the sound was probably really really bad because i mean now of course you go to a big gig now like an arena gig and you've got banks and banks of pas and you've got all sorts of stuff like this and the sound is generally possibly a bit muddy but it's pretty good then i mean we know this from things like the Beatles at Shea Stadium. You've got those little Vox AC30 amps, and it's just like, yeah, turn them up a little bit and, um, and, and sing as loud as you can. And, I mean, the band were obviously going to be much, much louder than the, uh, the, the, the lyrics, I think. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if the lyrics got lost or were lost in this Newport um, festival. And I mean, famously, Pete Seeger says, "Oh, give me an axe, and I'll chop down the, uh, you know, the, the, I'll put it through the wires to cut the sound." Now, Pete Seeger's a legend. I love Pete Seeger. I've got an awful lot of time for him. I mean, he was indicted with the House of Un-American Activities. He fought against McCarthy. He played with Woody Guthrie. And lest we forget, he played all of the verses of This Land Is Your Land at Obama's inauguration on, on Capitol Hill. So if he'd done nothing else other than that, then he'd be all right by me. And so I've got nothing, no no, no beef with, with, with Pete Seeger. But I suspect that the sound was atrocious and the sound was shocking because there's very little on this that I can believe would have been that alarming. I mean, these guys had listened to people like Odetta. They were very familiar with blues players like Lightning Hopkins, and I've already mentioned Howlin' Wolf. Robert Johnson, the king of the Delta blues singers. I mean, you want raw music. I mean, this isn't raw in, in that kind of regard, is it? And yet, all of a sudden, there he is. I think it's probably volume and bad sound, but I don't know. What's your take? I, I, I do wonder about that. I, I, you must remind me to come back to the, the original point of the question because I, I get carried away. But uh, there's there's a book, by, I think it's by, um, oh, I'm forgetting now. I was going to say C.P. Lee. I think that's who it is, on the, the Manchester concert in 66 and, and the famous booing and the Judas comments. And he talks a lot about, well, how could people be shocked, especially then? when it was a, a you know year after highway 61 had come out and and as you say when you know this sort of thing wasn't wasn't even new anymore and you you, you knew what you were getting and then the, and a lot of people were saying well actually it was that the sound was terrible and we just couldn't hear him so we wanted to hear him you know we've paid paid good money to go and hear bob Dylan. we want to hear him play although we did dig up a few people who had, who had literally come to boo which uh, is a wonderfully british thing uh, i think but uh, yeah so there's always been that tension hasn't there and it's never quite clear i think it suits the legend doesn't it to think that you know people were so unbelievably outraged by this uh, future shock that they were uh, reduced to howling obscenities at the stage. It probably probably wasn't quite like that. But but I was thinking, yeah, going back to the question, unprompted for a change, I do think that there's, po- there's possibly something about the authenticity question. Because I, I, I don't know, but my impression of the audience at Newport would be that we're talking pretty much middle-class, college-educated, northern white kids. And of course, it's one thing to listen to a Delta Blues man plug in and sound raw, because that's what you expect. But you've got your clean-cut kid who's representing you, who's standing against this um, infantilization of popular culture, who's standing against the injustices in the world in the same way you are. And now he's doing this, and it looks like he's having a really good time doing it as well. And you can't hear the lyrics, which is what you, you know, you're um, valuing the most. I wonder if that played into it as well. Might well have done. I think it would probably have added to this sense of shock because we said it would have been very easy after times they were changing for Bob Dylan to just remake that album 
and remake it some more and just keep kind of treading that path essentially and he i mean that's what he does he reinvents himself he constantly changes i think the other thing as well is of course i think i'm right in saying that he was backed by the butterfield blues band at newport and i mean they fucking rock they were really i I love them i mean they are they are a proper like hard rocking band and i mean they were the guys of course that played on highway 61 and i think that's so much of what i love about highway 61 is is them playing and they sound raw i mean like highway 61 it's just like going into another gear isn't it really i mean in terms of energy and everything like that it really raises its game and and so i think you've got there might well have been people who were shocked at this album the uh, bringing it all back home and thinking my goodness me what's he doing he's got an electric guitar playing fairly sedately alongside um, an acoustic guitar and there's there's a bit of you know bass on, on various uh, songs as well suddenly you get the uh, the Butterfield Blues Band plugging in and cranking up and playing these I mean that's that's just <laughs> kicking it way out of the park isn't it that's just on a whole other level which I think is great if you ever thought that he was in danger of, of being co-opted by the establishment I don't think there was ever any danger of that then <laughs> that, that very much disabuses you of that notion I suppose yeah that's right I mean you do see we're going to talk about this next time obviously but there is that gear shift onto Highway 61 isn't there and, and it's really striking to listen Listen to Maggie's Farm and then there's a bit of footage on YouTube of the, the Newport performance. I don't know if it's, I mean, presumably it's, it is, it is what it says it is on the tin. But yeah, the version that's on there with the Butterfield band is just incredible, isn't it? Uh, incredible in the sense that it's so different from what you get on the record. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot in that, certainly. Just wanted to, to touch on um, an, another song on, on this, this first side before we move on, because one of the songs I really loved at the time of first listening to it, and, and I still absolutely adore, is 115th Dream. Just tremendous. I mean, to go on for seven minutes in a comedy song and still be amusing. They're successful stand-ups that would give their eye teeth for that kind of sustained brilliance. I totally agree. And it's still, the thing is, it's still funny now and it doesn't, it doesn't get boring, which a seven-minute song it would be very, very easy to to lose your listener. But I mean, it, it's pretty relentless. And it's, I mean, it is, it's brilliant. It is so, so good. I mean, one of the things that really got me when I first listened to this, I forget how old I was, but the fact that you've got the false start, the fact that you've got him collapsing into laughter and that that's left on there, it's just brilliant. I mean, I think it's so, so fantastic because it, it just shows what, I mean, that, that's kind of what popular music should be about, really. And that's something that you wouldn't probably have had in the, in the prog rock era of the 1970s, for example. <laughs> I, I just, when everything was quite, you know, highbrow and serious. But just, I love the fact that they left that in there. Yeah, definitely. And I love the fact as well that it's not just a series of gags, is it? Like some of these earlier comedy songs. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a wonderfully drawn absurdist narrative and i can i I don't know if it's just me applying my own um images to it but i i suppose that's part of the genius of the songwriting isn't it if that's what's going on but i can picture arab you know getting out his uh, his charts and his little bag of beads to start bartering away and i can imagine columbus uh you know this kind of po-faced fellow sailing in very seriously with this vagabond heading out (laughs) in the opposite direction Stuff. Yeah, and 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 I mean, so you've got stuff like that which you could read a whole lot of stuff into, and then, then you've got lines like, you know, they threw us all in the jail for carrying harpoons. 
they asked asked me for some collateral and I pulled out my pants, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just, it's so stupid. It's just, it's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, am I, because I, when I listen to this, uh, and certainly when I, uh, I, I wasn't as familiar by any means with Another Side of Bob Dylan, I'm listening to that and thinking, Hang on, he's he's ripping himself off here. When you when you um when when you listen to Motorcycle Nightmare, because it's it's essentially the same. It's, the tune is is the same, but not quite as good. The lyrics are the same, but not quite as good. And so the idea that it could have been shocking that he was doing something like this. I mean, all that you basically got is is an electric guitar and a bit of drums in the background, and and it's the same kind of song, isn't it? But yeah, I, I think it's great. You've got that uh, that other link to Motorcycle Nightmare, haven't you? With the bit where he goes to the uh, the house with the US flag on display, and he gets himself into trouble in the same way as he's uh, he's a dirty commie rat, isn't he? In uh, in Motorcycle Nightmare, but yeah, yeah, t- tremendous stuff. And I, I, and also, I think that's where it's veering ever so slightly into a gentle kind of satire, isn't it? Which he was always still doing at this time. He was he's not apolitical. He's always still got these little jabs, these little asides. And we're going to come on to side two, where he's, he is explicitly writing protest lyrics, but just not in the way that he did before. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's harder to see now what all the fuss was about. I would just say on, on, on that one as well, the, um, the fact that you've got the Englishman saying fab in, in that song also. I think it's, um, it just shows that there's, that there's almost like nothing off limits in terms of what he's prepared to cite in the song it's just it's it's very kind of I suppose then it would have been very now but even now you listen to it and you think yeah well like that's still funny it's still humorous and he's still kind of he's sending up the Beatles isn't it I mean if if the story's to be believed he introduced them to smoking dope I mean it's a great story I want it to be true I don't know whether that's necessarily (laughs) the case but um, it, it's almost like he's got the jump on them there, hasn't he, in terms of the coolness factor. It's almost like the uh, the slightly more streetwise musician kind of thing. And saying the Englishman said fab, it's a bit almost perfunctory, isn't it? It's like, there, there, there you go. There you go, John. Well, Robert Shelton in his book says that the title of the record is a reference to the fact that all this music's American music and he's, he's bringing it all back home. Which I don't know how I don't know how true that is, but it's certainly whether he meant it in that way or not. But if, we, if we're quoting bits out of... 115th dream uh, one of the things that always makes me smile is that it took me a, a, a good decade to realize that when he uh, when his coin comes up tails and it rhymes with sales <laughs> tails also rhymes with jail <laughs> and when i realized that i was i was very happy but it, it took me it took me quite a lot longer than it, it took <laughs> most people i would imagine um right are we, are we ready to move on then to um yeah. to side yeah. two let's do it so I mean, yeah. You why don't why don't you kick off then? What on 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 side two? What what are we what are we thinking? Well, yeah. I mean, again, going back to uh, to Robert Shelton's book, he, he says in there that um, if he had a limited space of time to persuade somebody that Bob Dylan's a genius, he would play them this side of music, and it's it's hard to argue with him, really, isn't it? Just just to kick off, I suppose one of the things that occurred to me this time, listening to it back this week, was was that you've actually got the outline of a narrative in the way that the songs are sequenced here. So, so obviously, Mr. Tambourine Man, the narrator's marooned the evening, um, and then he's seeking for this inspiration, which arrives in the form of the song itself, and you end up beneath the diamond sky. Then you're all of a sudden, it's like the flip side of that coin. The door's closing, and Eden. Is on the other is on the other side of that door, and you're you're not you're not you're not going to be able to reach it. So I I, I feel like that that scene at the end of Mr. Tamarimam where he's um he's he's far away from the twisted sorrow and he's on the beach and uh, you know the diamond skies above him. I feel like you could almost say that's 
that's Eden. And then now we're, we're, we're just being drawn back a little bit into this, uh, this reality, but we're so far away from what Eden could be. And then you're zapped into It's All Right, Mar, where we, we get into the nitty gritty of what, what Eden isn't. But then you're drawn out of it by It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, which I don't find to be the, the cynical sneering song that a lot of people do. I find it much, much more delicate. Um, that might be a misreading, but it's certainly, whatever it is, it's certainly a, a liftoff point from where you had been in It's All Right, Mar, and the famous closing lines go start on you we're off again to another adventure on my next record aren't we so I, I do i appreciate that this time when i hadn't before probably as i say because i used to always dip into this album and listen to songs individually but i don't know what do you reckon rich did that work for you i think it does and i think it's one of these things where i mean mr tambourine man i think you've got all of the optimism here of the 60s all of the possibility now he couldn't have known this at the time. I, I mean, he hasn't got that kind of crystal ball or the ability to see into the future, I don't think. Although for reasons that we've already mentioned, it's sometimes tempting to think that he has. But you've got that, I mean, it's the vibrancy and the excitement of those lyrics, I think are absolutely wonderful. There's a real sense of possibility on this song. And then I think you've also got a sense that... Obviously, we, we occasionally make reference to the immortal bard uh, in this podcast. It's the sense, it's that kind of Shakespearean sense of of just being in love with words, really, and language. And I think that that really comes across with Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, the very fact that he's saying things like um, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, etc., etc. This is the same moment that the Beatles are saying, I want to hold your hand and stuff like that, which is, I mean, yes, they're in, they're orbiting each other, but I mean, they are poles apart in terms of complexity. And then I, I totally agree. I mean, Gates of Eden is, it's like snatching defeat from the jaws of victory kind of thing. It's like, yeah, here we go. The 1960s, we're going to reboot everything. Everything's going to be different. And then, you've got the sad reality. I mean, obviously he's not looking forward to things like Altamont or like the escalation of the Vietnam War, but it's kind of all there, isn't it? It's like, here's your promise and here it gets taken away. And I mean, it's all right, Ma, on the Before the Flood album, for example, and that's where I heard this song first. I love it, but it takes on a whole different resonance because I I think I'm right in saying, I'm sure I'm right in saying that this was very much uh, Watergate era, that uh, before the flood was was recorded and so when he sings someday the president of the united states has has to stand naked and the crowd go mad they're they're seeing this not as the death of necessarily the 60s dream or that innocence it's something entirely different and then yeah it's all over now baby blue i mean i love it it's i love the birds version of it but what interested me is that sometimes when i go back to bob dylan songs or have gone back to them in the past having listened to the birds versions i've preferred the kind of increased melodic kind of um aspects that the that the birds give with their arrangements but this one, I just think it's it's so it's a beautiful song. I mean, it's so lovely, and I agree with you. I'm not sure that this is the kiss off to the folk movement that some people think it is. I'm not sure it's that kind of sneering, kind of flipping in the bird. I think it's just there's it, something more melancholy rather than angry about this for my money. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, let's get into this now, actually. I mean, we were we were thinking, weren't we, that a, a lot of this album is seen as the um, the kiss off to the folk music, as you say, to the folk movement, as you say. But I, I don't see it that way. I, I certainly don't see it in in this song. And, and I think it's that final it's that final line that that's the clincher. I mean, it's not about saying, well, you know, I'm I'm far beyond you now, because of course he he could be talking about himself. And and, it, and that probably makes the most sense, doesn't it? When you you know you think about him him reinventing and all this business about um, the person in the clothes that you once wore and all that kind of stuff. You know he, he's he's transforming and going through these evolutions as he as he tends to do. So that works on that level. But but if if you think about it as him talking to somebody else, it's not. I don't see it as a as a as a bitter song. It's an acknowledgement that that things have changed. But actually. The really important thing is you must leave, you must start anew. And it's it's almost in that way, I, I read it almost as a supportive song, <laughs> which I know is way off from what a lot of people have written about it. So maybe I'm just way off piece, but that's definitely the way I, I see it. And actually, just on the performance, I think it's astonishing. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful performance. We talked a lot in the episode on the first album about how he was a a marvelous singer and the, the idea that he was a bad singer is you know something that's, that's that's just plainly ludicrous but i think again here on this track just astonishing uh, tremendous and weirdly when you go from that to listen to the other versions of this song the many dozens of versions that are out there for me it's his it's his other versions that are the next best things to this so despite all the, the myriad storied artists that have covered it it's it's his version on the 66 tour his version again on the um the rolling thunder stuff just uh just incredible but what one thing that i did notice this time which i noticed for the very first time was that he doesn't sing reindeer armies does he on the on the record uh whereas he does on all the other versions that's right and, yeah. and i yeah i was just astonished by that I, I, if you i would have if you'd asked me to quote a lyric from the song, I probably would have picked that one, but it doesn't appear. He, he gets confused, doesn't he? But the, the, mar- the marvellous thing about it is he gets confused with the line from the previous verse, but just seamlessly carries on anyway. And it, it makes <laughs> it makes not the slightest job of difference. But yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've babbled on about Baby Blue for a long no, time. I, 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 think, I, think for a I think it's a song that's worth, that's worth babbling on about because this is absolutely, I agree, this is proof positive that he's a great singer. And I think that that's very important. I think the more the more that I listen back, as we're doing with this podcast, of course, and listening back to Bob Dylan albums and trying to rediscover them for the first time, the more I realise how little I understand of his lyrics. And along with that, the more I realise that that's probably not a bad thing because I think I had a tendency years back to try and figure out exactly what he meant and exactly what he was saying. Now, I'm... Mm. I'm realistic enough now to know that that's A, impossible, but B, does it really matter? I don't think it really does with something like this. I mean, I I just, I always listen to this as being a song which is just carries a message, but it's, it's just quite sad and it's quite supportive in the way that you said previously. And I think that you don't always need that kind of context of, oh, is it, is it saying goodbye to a movement or whatever? Because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. I also just, while we're on the subject of it, I love it when he plays, uh, this to it's donovan that he plays it to isn't it yeah don't yeah. and i forget what donovan plays it's evidently a very good song and then dylan comes out with uh, with it's all over now baby i mean where do you go from there there's, there's only one winner emerging from that particular guitar off and it's, it's not going to be donovan <laughs> in that instance <laughs> we should probably move 
towards thinking about wrapping this one up reasonably soon, I suppose. So, I mean, normally we talk about highlights and lowlights. So what about your highlights and lowlights on, on, on this one? I mean, there's plenty of highlights, obviously. Any, any lowlights? Yeah, it's it's really harsh to pick a, a low light, isn't it, on this? I mean, I, I do agree with you, though, that listening to it again now, you can't get away from the fact that the quality of the second light is, is so much higher than the first side. And even with that incandescent opening of Subterranean Homesick Blues, which just shows the quality we're talking about here, but I do think the kind of the muddy, bluesy recordings on the first side, they're, they're a low light. And I'd, I'd probably go without the blues, which is, is ridiculous to say, because it's got that pistol shot of um, uh, don't ask me nothing about nothing. I just might tell you the truth, not to mention all the stuff about Jesse James and uh, Robert Ford. It's, it's, it's a, I love the song, but it probably is on the downside of this record. Highlights, uh, I suppose it'll surprise Baby Blue. But I, I did just want to reflect on, on, on this album. I think there's so many great songs, as you say. But what I thought when I, when I was listening back this time was that there are lots of songs for anyone who loves music one of the things that, that keeps us coming back and wanting to discover new stuff is that moment when totally unexpectedly something just comes in stops you in your tracks whatever you're doing you might be driving your car and you want to you want to stop it and and jump out and grab by the lapels and say good god you gotta listen to this now and the songs that do that to you every every now and then aren't there and they're, they're special songs and they're special moments but then those songs that you can come back to a decade later and they're still doing it the hundredth time, the two hundredth time, the thousandth time you're listening to it. Those are the keepers on this album, Baby Blue, Mr. Tambourine Man. You can't really go far wrong with those two, can you? So those are definitely my highlights for that, for that reason. But uh, how about you, Rich? Without wanting to sound exactly like you, I'd say that those are definite highlights. I think, but going back to that idea of, of keepers and things jumping out at you kind of 10, 15, 20 years later, I really used to like the Outlaw Blues and the, the Chuggy songs when I was younger I don't like them so much now I've got nothing major against them I just don't think that they're as good as the rest of the stuff on here but I never really got Gates of Eden I'm not sure I get Gates of Eden now in fact I, I very much doubt that I do but I didn't really used to like it as a song I used to find it when I was much younger a bit dirge-like and a bit meandering um, and yet and, and, and I still am not convinced by the fact that there's a a single note kind of harmonica solo played at the end of each verse. I'm not quite sure what that does. But as a song, I think it's great. And I think it's endlessly interesting now. I find it fascinating. I mean, look, we call this podcast Bob Dylan American Shakespeare. It's this idea of trying to make the the links between Shakespeare and not kind of really explicit links, but just in terms of the fact that they've had such cultural kind of capital and currency and this idea of being able to go back and rediscover an artist's work and finding out all of this discovering all of this new meaning that you hadn't seen before i think is is fascinating one of the things that it reminded me of was the the robin island bible which is perhaps a slightly spurious link to make but essentially when mandela and the other members of the anc were incarcerated on robin island they um they passed around this copy of the complete works of Shakespeare and beneath each of uh, their favourite passages, they essentially just wrote down their initials. And yet when they were interviewed about this sometime after being released, most of them said, well, I wouldn't have chosen that. What was I thinking? Why was I, why did I choose that, etc." And it's this idea of context and different times in your life and the way that it can change meaning. And I think in the same way that Shakespeare is able to do that, and you go back to any one of Shakespeare's plays and they will 
that you, you will see different things and think different things and, and that's exactly the same as Dylan is here and it's that that's the mark of a true genius of an artist I think and so I, for that reason I'm gonna I'm gonna say that it went all the way from being a low light to being a highlight and that uh, the Gates of Eden is is right up there with the best of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I didn't have quite the um, the, the radical revisionist um, interpretation of it that you did, but certainly it was one of the ones that I found harder to listen to in years gone by. I did think of it very much along the same lines as A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall. We talked about that uh, a few episodes ago, didn't we? About yeah. how it was a very hard listen. <laughs> a hard rain and a hard listen. Um, <laughs> Oh dear, it's getting late here. But yeah, that's right. I, I did think of it in exactly the same way as that previously. But I do think it's that it's that repeated listening that brings it home. And I'm, I'm not sure it's it, in my case, but it's so much the difference between how I would have viewed it as a as an 18 year old and how I view it now. But there might well be something in that too. It's certainly a very very complex song that does unfold the more you listen to it and and as you yourself change. So yeah, yeah definitely something in that. I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's also one of those things where what we're trying to do with this podcast is make sure that we're listening to albums in their entirety and listening to them multiple times in a way that we would have done as adolescents. And, and with a song like that, you, you need to listen to it several times, really. I think it's, that's, that's where the kind of the art and the interpretation come from. I'm aware that we're, we're nearly out of time. And so, you know, normally we, we talk about last thoughts on, on this album. I, I think the last thoughts is something that you told me previously that I would have here. And that's that guitarist Bruce Langhorn, who previously played on Karina Karina, he played the guitar on this, but he was recruited supposedly because he owned a very large tambourine. So I think that the moral of the story, the last thoughts on this one is, uh, if you want to get on a Bob Dylan session, then... Uh, Buy the biggest tambourine you can lay your hands on. <laughs> Keep a good head and always carry a tambourine. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you very much for listening to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. We are very excited next time to be tackling the delights of Highway 61 Revisited. Please follow us. We're available on all the usual streaming platforms and you can find us on Twitter if you search at Dylan American. <laughs>